Well, it is good to be back with you all, as I've chatted with a few people in the foyer this morning already. Uh, Nadine and I were away last weekend. Uh, Like a lot of people, actually, I guess uh, there's a number of people who were away last weekend. We had the privilege of going to uh, Lake Louise for a couple of days, and it was a really nice time to go into the mountains and just relax for a little bit. We uh, took a gondola up one of the mountains, and we're looking for some bears. We saw some stuffed bears, but that was about the, the extent of it. We were looking for live ones, but didn't find any. Uh, beyond that, we had a chance to lounge in the sun, sit on a patio. Uh, it's a bit of an odd place if you've been there before, because you're so high up in the mountains, there's still a fair bit of snow in Lake Louise, and yet the patios are clear, and you can sit out there in plus 20-degree temperature and suntan amongst a foot of snow. Uh, so it's quite a nice place to be. Uh, we had a chance to roast some apples and enjoy just quiet downtime. On, on Saturday, actually, we were sitting on one of those patios, and uh, we were just enjoying ourselves the afternoon, reading a book, resting in this nice, serene environment, but then suddenly that changed as we heard this noise off to the side, and, and then we heard loud voices, and we looked, and there was the hostess for the restaurant bringing a family to a table, and the only open table was right across from us. So we kind of figured we knew where they were going. And sure enough, mom and dad and these two girls, age five and seven about, had come to enjoy lunch with us in our once serene environment. (laughs) Now, the older girl was by far the loudest and and the most active. And on top of that, she had attitude to spare, (laughs) a lot of attitude. So after she got settled, she gave her lunch order to her mom, and then her and her sister went off to play, which was nice because then peacefulness returned to the area, but only for a short time, because then as they came back, they were even more energized from their time playing. Now, now dad tried to, tried to uh, calm her down. He was very calm, and he tried to settle her down and, and direct her energy towards other activities, but to no success. And so finally, he looked at his daughter, and he said something that I think all of us parents have probably at one time or another said to all of our kids. He looked at her, and he said, don't you know how to behave? And without missing a beat, she looked at him right in the eye and she goes, yes, but right now I'm choosing my own path. (laughs) And so so Nadine and I were, were, we don't know if we should laugh or or how to respond to that. But sure enough, for the rest of the lunch, she chose her own path and continued through. So shortly thereafter, we asked for the check and we chose another path as well for ourselves. But I, I was thinking about that encounter this week as I was preparing for today's sermon. As we are journeying through this series called The Pursuit, this pursuit of, of greater Christ-likeness, of, of greater spiritual maturity, and I thought, how often are we like that? How often do we look at our Heavenly Father and go, you know what? Right now I'm going to choose my own path. When there is a path that has been set out before us, there, there is a path that is in front of us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that throughout this whole series and each of the topics we cover from week to week, that we will come to a deeper understanding of what that direction is that is before each of us. Now, so far in this series, we have talked about the necessity of carving out a a place and a space in our lives, a place and a space in our calendars so that we can spend intentional, meaningful time in the Word of God, understanding who He is through the revelation of His Word in the Bible. Last week, Pastor Luke talked about the importance and the power of prayer. Two very foundational aspects as we start this pursuit, this journey on the path of growing in greater Christ-likeness. And now to that today, I want to add one more thing. I want to add to that 
the importance of practicing true worship. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? I'm going to guess that a lot of people would say things like, like singing. Singing probably comes to your mind first and foremost. It's, it's very, very common. Other people would say, well, well praying or, or giving, uh, serving. The list would go on because worship really is a very broad topic. A lot of things could come to mind when we hear that word worship. But there's a good chance that if we were to take the time to write all those things down on a board and then step back and have a look at them, all of the definitions, all of the ideas we would come up with would be focused upon outward expressions of worship. Because worship is one of those words that we tend to define by our experiences, by our expressions of it, and the things that we've seen expressed and experienced in other people. But I want to suggest to you today that the true biblical worship that we as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to, that that true biblical worship is much deeper than those examples. That biblical worship is not primarily about the expression, but rather about the heart of the worshiper, more so than the expression of the worship. Back in 1998, Matt Redman wrote a song called The Heart of Worship. We, we sang that song here today. And in those opening words, he says, when the music fades, and when all is stripped away, and when we just simply come, when we come to worship, when we come to worship longing to bring more than a song, we long to bring something to God that will bless his heart. We bring more than a song because a song in itself is not what he's required. Because God searches much deeper within. He searches much deeper within beyond the way that things appear on the outside. And he looks into the heart, into the heart of the worshiper. So worship. We can see it expressed through the words that come off the lips of people. We can see it expressed through the the works, the good works of the hands of people. But God longs to see it first and foremost in the hearts of his people. And so today I invite you to join me in pursuing the inner essence of, of what worship is that we see in Scripture. So we talk about worship as defined in the Bible. It, it's not always easy to arrive at a clear definition of what we're talking about. Because in the New Testament, the word for worship that is used is proskuneo. Now, proskuneo shows up dozens of times in the New Testament. And what it literally means is to fall on the ground, either to fall onto your knees or even just like prostrate, like belly and forehead in the dirt fall on the ground out of reverence and respect in praise. That's a literal definition of proskuneo. Now we find this used different ways and in different contexts throughout the New Testament, which makes it difficult to get a full understanding of what are we called to offer towards God. But we find a key that helps us in, in Matthew chapter 15 in the words of Jesus. In Matthew 15 verses 8 and 9, Jesus makes a critical distinction between the outward expression of worship and the inner essence. When he says this, He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now, one way to understand these these outer expressions, he refers to these outer expressions here as as honoring with lips, these outer expressions. One way to refer to those things is through the word veneration. You may have heard that word veneration in the past. And essentially, veneration is the act of showing honor and respect that is due to a person or, or to an object. 
And now we see this in the world around us. For example, if, uh, if a student does really well at school, we hold an awards ceremony and we, we celebrate and honor that person. Uh, in a sporting event, there's always a trophy or a medal at the end. In a ceremony that goes along with that to acknowledge the, the effort, the training that went into it. If we go to a retirement party, we celebrate and honor the person. We might even sing for he's a jolly good fellow type of, type of celebration. But here's the thing. If this is the extent of what we're giving to God is veneration, then I would argue that all we've really done is engaged in some ceremonial rites and liturgy. We haven't really gone beyond that. We, we, we've performed off, uh, worship, acts of worship in the moment, but it's devoid quite often of relationship and commitment. As I thought about this uh, veneration idea in sports, I, I, I thought about the Olympics. Uh, so many of us will watch a lot of hours of Olympics when that comes around every couple of years. And, and I do myself, too. During the Summer Olympics, I'll watch all sorts of sports I've never thought of before, even knew existed. And when our Canadian athletes win, I, I celebrate with them, and I cheer them on, and I feel a sense of nationalistic pride. But then a few days later, when the games are over, I, I forget about pole vaulting. I, I don't watch pole vaulting for another four years again. Right? You, just, you just don't do it. Well, it, it can be the same thing in our worship. If worship is reduced to performing some acts for an hour on Sunday morning, but then the rest of the days of the week we completely forget about it, perhaps we're in danger of simply offering this veneration. We're offering acts of worship that is devoid of commitment and relationship. And that's not what Jesus is seeking. What he's referring to here, this type of worship, he says, is pointless. He's kind of saying, attend as many services as you want. Sing as many songs as you want. Do as many good deeds as you can fit into your calendar. But if it is only simply an external act, if it's simply done out of obligation, if it is not done in relationship or in context of who Jesus is, he says it's done in vain. Because worship is first and foremost, it starts in the heart. The heart is where the motivation for worship emerges from. And that's what Jesus says here he desires. He desires worshipers whose hearts desire to know him, desire to praise him, desire to put his worth on display for the world to see. Now, theologically, this is referred to through the term adoration. Now, adoration is worship that is paid to God alone. And it requires us to have a proper grasp of God's reality, of his nature, and of his value in our lives. Essentially, it requires us to have a relationship with God to the point where we reach a a moment where we value God above all else in the world. And once this starting point is the starting point of our worship, once God becomes the central object of our worship, it then leads us to external expressions. It then leads us to worship him through our thoughts, our actions, our words, and our priorities. Now, here's the thing about veneration and adoration. Both are valid. Both need to exist within our lives. And so it's not that one is better than the other. It's a matter of applying the proper one to the proper situation. For example, if your child does well in school, makes the honor roll, get dressed up. Go out for dinner. Go to the ceremony. Take a 100 pictures and stick those things on Facebook. Live stream that thing if you want to. Celebrate that incredible moment. 
if your team has, a, has an amazing third period comeback or if your team hits a walk-off home run, high-five your buddy. It's worth celebrating those moments. Here's the danger, though. The danger comes when those types of things start to receive not veneration, but adoration. Once that happens, we've started to move into this territory that belongs to God alone. And we've started to move into a danger area referred to as idolatry. Where we start to worship the things not of God and things beyond God. When we think about idolatry, uh, common common things that compete for God's attention in our lives come to mind, such as uh, money, careers, prestige, power. But even people and activities can, defe- can uh, compete with God's place in our lives. If we're worshiping stuff, then quite often it finds its expression and we have to own the right car or buy the bigger house or, or have the newest phone because it gives us a sense of feeling cool or, or powerful. It, it completes us somehow if we can do that. If we worship things like work, people can actually worship work. And they put in long hours and sacrifice other aspects of their lives in order to increase productivity because it gives them a sense of purpose. It gives that person a sense of identity. Even our activities can compete with us. I know I had a friend a couple years ago who would stop going to church every fall because the NFL started. And he, did, he could not miss a live game. He literally would not go to church during the NFL season. But then he'd be right back as soon as it was over. As soon as Super Bowl was done, he was back the next Sunday. See, even our activities, our work, stuff can compete with that place that God has in our lives. But anything that we allow to steal that first place of priority, of importance, that first place of influence, anything we allow to give us identity that trumps God, there's a high likelihood it's in the realm of idolatry. And God was very clear back in Exodus 20 when, when he gave the Ten Commandments. And very, very quickly on in those Ten Commandments, he said, You shall have no other gods before me. Then he added this. He said, For the Lord your God is a jealous God. He is jealous. He's jealous for us. And he's jealous for us to give him that top spot in our lives. And here's the thing. He doesn't like competition for that top spot, but he also won't wrestle us for it. He will not wrestle you for that top spot because if we love him, if we see the value and worth of him, then he wants us to follow through in our desire to offer it to him. And we offer it to him by submitting our lives to him. We offer it to him by understanding and having the knowledge that we do have a dependence upon him. And by understanding this thing called lordship, which means he's in control, and we have brought ourselves under his lordship. Essentially, he wants us to worship him. He wants us to put his supreme worth on display in our lives through who we are, what we say, and what we do. He wants us to have this adoration for him that starts in our hearts and then leads to outward expressions in these physical manifestations. So that provides a bit of a uh, kind of a basic theory behind biblical worship. And I know that that can be helpful to define some of these terms, but at the same time, it's, it's not always easy to put that into practice. It can be difficult to put that into practice at times. So I thought we would take a moment here and, and look at a familiar story from the Old Testament. A story from the Old Testament where we can see some of these key aspects of worship that are put on display for us. 
And then we'll take a moment after to look at that story and we'll look at three key principles of worship that hopefully we can put into work in our own lives. Now, the story I want to share with you comes from the book of Genesis. Partway through the book of Genesis, you'll encounter a man by the name of Abraham. Now, Abraham lived in a once pagan land. And God called him to leave his land and to leave his people and to go to another land with a promise. The promise was that he would become a great nation, that he would have numerous descendants, and that he would have another land that would be given to him and his descendants, and that they would be a blessing to all people for all times. Now, in faith, Abraham then takes his wife, Sarah, and they set out in anticipation of this promise being fulfilled in their lives. But 25 years pass, and a problem that was central to this promise being fulfilled had not been revealed to them yet. You see, they were not the youngest people in the world, and they had no children of their own. And so without any children of their own, how in the world was this promise of great descendants, a great nation, going to be fulfilled? But when Abraham was 99 years old, and, and Sarah, who was, who was a much younger woman at the age of 90, was revisited by God, who reestablishes this covenant promise with them, and says, you will be a great nation. You will have as many descendants, more descendants than the sands of the sea, than the stars of the sky. And they're thinking to themselves, I, I'd be happy with one. I'd be good with one for now. And, and so God promises and miraculously enables them to have a son a year later and they name him Isaac. Now, understandably, Isaac brings incredible joy and excitement to Abraham and Sarah, as well as helping to build their faith in God. They had had an experience of 25 years with God, which was foundational to understanding who he was and building this relationship, but his ability to follow through on giving a child to them at this season of life just took a huge leap in their ability to trust in him, to know who he was, and to have their faith and confidence in him. And Abraham deeply loved his son Isaac. Deeply loved him. Because of the miraculous birth, but also because Isaac was the one who would carry on the family name and would carry on the covenant that God had made with them. Now sometime later after this, when Isaac was in his teenage years, God in his divine wisdom decided that he needed to test Abraham. So God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son your only son. I want you to take the son whom you love. In case you're not sure which one that was, his name is Isaac. And I want you to go to the region of Moriah. And there I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Now, now to us, this is a shocking command. It, when we read this story, when we hear this command, it can cause us to recoil and really to question God's goodness. It's quite a, it's quite a statement. But, but here's the thing, is that back in the time and the culture of Abraham, this actually wouldn't have been as surprising to Abraham. You see, in the worldview of the time, it was widely accepted and believed that God's provided for different aspects of people's lives, and whatever they provided for you, they had an entitlement to a portion thereof. So, if a god of fertility provided you with a child, in that day's worldview, he had a rightful claim upon the offspring. Now, I'm not suggesting Abraham was happy about this, but there was a degree of understanding of what was taking place. And I assume that it was troubling and a difficult request to receive. However, in the very next verse, we're told that Abraham wakes up the next day, saddles a donkey, commissions some servants, grabs a pile of wood, his son Isaac, and they set off on a three-day journey to Moriah. Now, here's a critical part of the story that sometimes we, we miss as we read through it and gloss over it. 
You see, when they arrive at the foot of the mountain after about three days, we're told this in verse 5. The Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Stay here while we go worship. Now what's going through his mind as he says this to his servants? There's a couple possibilities. Maybe he's lying to them. Maybe he's hiding the true purpose of their expedition from them because he's worried that if he tells them, hey, I'm going to go up the mountain and kill the boy, that they'll rebel and maybe they'll try and seize him. Or worse yet, they'll go home and tell Sarah what what he's up to. Maybe he only planned to go kind of nine-tenths of the way. Where, well, I'll see how this all plays out. I'll go right up to the very edge, but I won't quite, you know, go all the way in following through. We'll see how this plays out. Well, there's a third option, which actually Hebrews 11, verse 19, suggests that this was exactly what he planned to do, was to go up the mountain, follow through on this command of God, and worship him in this manner. Because as Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us, Abraham believed that God was powerful enough that he could even raise the dead. And so they start up the mountain together. Isaac carrying the wood. Abraham carrying the knife and the fire. Now partway up the mountain, Isaac asks his father a rather insightful question. Partway up the mountain, he says, Dad, what are we going to sacrifice? Because they had brought nothing with them. They had brought no animal with them to sacrifice. Abraham's response simply is, son, God will provide. Now when they arrive at the spot, they build an altar out of wood, and and Abraham binds Isaac and places him on top of the altar, which is how the text reads. I think it was probably a little more struggle involved than than the text shows there as he bound him and placed him on top of the wood. I'm sure this teenage son resisted a little bit. But anyways, he he manages to, to get him on top of the altar, and Abraham raises the knife, ready to come down upon the boy, when suddenly an angel appears and says, Stop! Don't hurt the boy! And then says, Now I know that you fear God, because you withheld nothing from me, not even your son, your only son whom you love. And at that moment, they then see a ram that's caught in the thicket off to the side, and they, and they take that and they sacrifice that ram to God in place of Isaac. Now, this might seem like a curious story on worship for us to uncover today. But there's three key principles about the heart of worship that I want to share with you. Number one, in this story, Abraham demonstrates for us what adoration looks like. What adoration looks like. His actions can only be attributed to a man of unshakable faith, of a man who realizes who God is, who understands God's nature, A man who not only understands God, but understands the value of God and places him at that number one spot in his life to the point where there is nothing in his life more important, not even his only son whom he loved. Now, I'm not suggesting he was happy about this, that he was happy about following through on this form of worship. I I think it's pretty fair to, to, uh, to guess that it tormented him, that this is what he had to follow through with. It was extremely difficult that this was the season he was called to walk through. But even in the midst of that difficult season, he had a belief. A belief, first of all, as he said to his son, that God would provide. And I think as he said those words, God will provide, it was not so much a statement as much as a prayer. That Lord, as we get to the top of this mountain, I pray you will provide. Secondly, he had a belief in God that that God had the power to overcome. 
that God had the power to redeem any of these situations he might find himself in because he knew the true nature of God from the 25 years, possibly even 30, 35 years he had traveled with God in relationship at this point. He knew that God had proven himself in the past time and time again to be faithful and powerful and just. And so his experience of God in the past and what he was enduring in the present probably led him to the idea of of, there must be more going on here than I'm aware of. Because if there is no Isaac, there is no promise. So there must be a bigger picture I'm just not aware of. But even in the midst of that uncertainty, he pressed on on the path set before him. He pressed on on the path to worship God because he had confidence in the Lord. And he knew that even if it was necessary for him to follow through to the very end, that God was good enough, just enough, and powerful enough that he could even raise Isaac from the dead. Now, I don't know what that may reveal to some people who are here today. I know there are people who will come through these doors that will be going through a difficult situation or struggling with something that perhaps is causing you to question God, to question his goodness and question his nature. Maybe it's been going on long enough and it's serious enough that you're even questioning God's existence. But I want to remind you today that God is greater than your pain. God is greater than the situation. God is greater than the uncertainty. If you look to his presence in your life in the past, you can see that he has been there. He has been faithful and good and just. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I also want to remind you that the final page of your story has not yet been written. That this story is not not completed yet. And yes, it can be hard to worship God in the midst of these moments. It can be hard to continue walking the path when, when that storm or when that fog sets in and we're not quite sure what the future holds. But remember, it is not the storm that deserves our attention. It is not the storm that deserves our worship. It is Jesus who stands with you who deserves our attention and our worship. It is Jesus who stands with you who, for all you know, could be one moment away from saying, peace, be still in your storm. Because God has never left you. And he will never cease to be true to his character. And because of that, he is worthy of our worship. There's a second point. That this was the first time in Abraham's life with God that there was no promise, there was no gain that came with the command. You see, right at the very start of the story, God said, Abraham, leave your family but I will give you countless descendants. He said, leave your land, but I will give you a vast region if you leave your land and follow me. And if you follow that story throughout the rest of the chapters, we see that every time God asks Abraham to sacrifice something, it's balanced by a promise, which gave him incredible motivation and to some extent made it worth his while to follow through. Yes, I will lose something, but I will gain more. However, here in this story, there is no upside. There is no upside to this. There is no promise to balance the potential loss. The best case scenario is that Abraham kills Isaac, God resurrects Isaac, but he's no further ahead. It's still him and his son, except this time his son has a scar on his chest and his wife is furious. There's there's no upside to it. But remember how this passage started. The passage started with God in his divine wisdom deciding to test Abraham. Now, what was the nature of that test? I I think in part we could boil the test down to this question. Do you worship me out of personal gain 
or simply because you love me. And now Abraham proved his faithfulness and his commitment to God and not by the things that he would potentially receive through following through in this story. Now there's a similar question that can be asked of us as we consider our worship of God. Whether in our personal or collective times of worship, what is our motivation for worshiping God? I think sometimes we will engage in worship because we want to appease God so that he won't remove anything from us. He won't remove a blessing from us. I had a a neighbor back in Prince George who went to the same church as us, and we became friends with them. And I remember one day, on a Monday, we were talking to him after work. He's like, I had a terrible morning. And then I realized, oh, I didn't tithe yesterday. And so he left work, and he raced back to the church to write the check so that his day would improve. Trying to kind of appease God for not following through on the proper worship the day prior. Which I want to suggest to you is not what tithing is about. It's not what worship is about. We don't tithe to, to appease God. We, we don't tithe even to pay the church bills. We don't tithe to pay the pastor's salary. We don't tithe to, to keep the lights on. That's, that's secondary. We tithe because God commands us to do so. Because it's an act of worship. Not because we got a letter in the mail or there's a special project. Those are things above and beyond. But we do it as an act of worship. Not to appease. But also not to entreat him so that he may pour out more blessings upon us. You see, sometimes people will feel the sense that if, if I volunteer more or if I'm more generous or if I give more, then I'll earn more of God's favor. But we also don't worship to, just like we don't worship so that he won't remove things, we don't worship so that he will add things. Sometimes we can worship in, in a sense of uh, Pascal's wager. If you ever heard of that term before, if not, that's something to Google this afternoon, Pascal's wager where we're just kind of playing the odds. Well, just in case there's a heaven, I'm going to, you know, I'll play the odds and follow through with the worship and the steps. Just on the off chance, heaven actually exists. Or, or perhaps we worship simply out of a belief that God is worthy of our worship. Simply it's because we believe he's worthy. That it is worship that is due to him which is what Romans 12, verse 1 talks about in part. When it says, in view of God's mercies, in view of who God is, in view of God's nature, in in view of what we've experienced in the past of our relationship with God, in view of his goodness and his grace, in view of his unconditional love and grace towards you, in view of the redemption he offers to you, in view of God's mercies, it begins. In view of those things, in view of who he is, off your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Which leads us to our third point, our third principle. That true worship that we find in the story is God-centered. That worship is God-centered, not form-centered. You see, Abraham had offered many sacrifices to God in the past. He had built many altars, and he had sacrificed many animals. He had, he had prayed to God. He had talked with God on many times, many occasions. He had a good understanding of what worship looked like in his relationship with God. But, but this, this command to go sacrifice Isaac, this was new. This was not something he had experienced before. However, he was willing to honor God in this way because of who God was and because of the position God held in his life because that's what God asked him to do. His worship was God-centered, not form-centered. So 
Let me help you understand what that means a little bit further. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. And as they strike up a conversation, the Samaritan woman draws up some different points of, of dialogue, one of which had to do with the fact that the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along very well. They argued about many, many things, uh, theologically and practically. One, for example, that she brings to Jesus' attention is the proper place of worship. Now, the Samaritans believed that the proper place to worship and the place that they had built a temple was upon Mount Gerizim. The Jews, however, said, no, the only true proper worship has to happen in the temple in Jerusalem. And so they were divided on these things, these, these forms of worship. Now, at times, the Samaritans, the Jews, and, and even ourselves, if we're honest, at times we will validate, we will qualify if worship is valid based upon preferences, culture, and expectations. Now, while there is nothing wrong with a church having a set liturgy, there's nothing wrong with a church having a, a certain style of, or culture of worship, there are so many churches that have been destroyed by these worship wars where focusing on preferences has ripped the churches apart. But I've got to adamantly tell you that worship must always remain an expression of praise to God from a contrite heart. And it must never become a weapon, a weapon by which we use to divide and to judge and condemn. And, and I think this, this concern over form that divides people was part of Jesus' concern too. Because here's what he says to the woman when she brings up this point of we worship here, they worship there, who's right? His answer to her was this. There's a time coming and indeed has already come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind the Father seeks. The focus is upon spirit and truth. What does that mean to worship in spirit? Well, it's similar to what I've been saying already. That, that God's nature is spirit, not material. And primarily, his focus is not upon the physical space. There are churches who can meet in a building like this. There are churches who can meet in a field. There are churches who can meet in abandoned car lots. It's not about the physical space. It's not about the instrumentation. There are churches who will have full worship bands. There are some who will have pianos. There will be moments today where we had no instruments and just voices. It will not be about how our worship looks, if you stand or if you sit, if you have one arm up, halfway up, partway up, if you've got both arms up. If you're laughing, clapping, crying. It's not about the form. Rather, it's about the spirit focus that emerges from the heart, that it starts in the heart with that right spiritual grasp of God's value, that we would worship in that spirit, but also that we would worship in truth which means we might, must have the right mental grasp of who God really is, which informs our worship. Because he is truth, and our worship must focus upon him, be about him, and accurate to him. Not upon a God of our own creation, or upon an idol that we wish to desire to follow, but based upon the word of God, and our experiences with him as we've journeyed with him down this path, as we've been pursuing Christ-likeness. And this is so foundational to our Christian walk that it's, it's the reason that we spent the first two weeks of our series talking about the revelation of God in Scripture and prayer. Because that's where we get 
a greatest understanding of what does it mean to have our minds renewed with truth, to, to worship in truth by experiencing how he has revealed himself through the scriptures and engaging with him and his Holy Spirit through prayer. And we can start there, and now we can add on some of these expressions that come forth, such as expressions through worship. Now, if you missed those, those sermons or if you want to listen to them again on Scripture and Prayer, you can do so off of our website. This week, actually, we even launched on iTunes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes if you want to hear those again. But as it says in this, in this pa- passage, that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, which is looking primarily to the heart, not to the form. The form matters, but it starts in the heart. And we can truly, freely worship God when we know him and when we treasure him in our lives, when we place nothing of value above him, when there is nothing of worth that is more worthy than him, and when we can understand that he has the one who goes before us in power, then, from a point of adoration, a deep love, yearning, and value from our hearts, will our worship be pleasing to him, and will it find visible expression in the world around us? I invite the worship team to come up here as I just close quickly. You see, when it starts in the heart and comes out in our expression, not only do we offer to God worship that is worthy of Him, not only does it draw us closer to Him, not only can we come together and collectively be encouraged and offer our praises together, but never underestimate the power of the message of your worship. Because worship, particularly worship in the Old Testament, if you look at the purpose of the worship of the Old Testament, it was to draw other nations to God. And our worship here today that we do in this place, but more importantly, the worship we will do when we leave this place. And when I come back up after the song, I'll talk about that for a moment. The worship we do when we leave this place has incredible power to draw people towards God. And so I invite you now as we close this time to sing a wonderful hymn. I invite you to sing it from hearts of adoration as we proclaim to God, To God be the glory.